Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Jenna Reinbold, Associate Professor of Religion at Colgate University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Analytical Descriptive Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, Seeing the Myth in Human Rights, published with University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, Thanks for joining me. Congratulations uh, on the award. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So this is a, a really great topic, I think, uh, because it really shows, I think, a lot of the ways that uh, the things people do in religious studies uh, can be applied in much broader context. So I really, I really enjoyed your book. Um, I think it would probably work really well in a class, too. Um, and so your study focuses on the United Nations uh, Universal Decla- Declaration of Human Rights. Um, lots of us have probably heard about that, but but what What is the UDHR? Uh, What's the context in which it was produced? Um, What kind of things do we need to to just start to understand your project? Um, So so the UDHR was a document that was created in 1948, and it was an extension of a project that got started with the um, with the creation of the United Nations and um, and the 1945 United Nations Charter. Um, So there's a portion in that charter that talks about um, that, that sort of um, hands over to the United Nations the um, the task of setting up a commission for the promotion of human rights is how is how the charter puts it and the first commission on human rights was created out of out of that mandate um, by the um, by a subset of the United Nations and their task was to um, basically formulate what at the time was um, referred to. Uh, by the by, the creators as a kind of international declaration of human rights um, or an international um, covenant of human rights. So the first commission on human rights was put together, and they and over a two year period they put forth a number of drafts and and had numerous meetings and conferences to um, to talk about the language and um, figure out what exactly this this international bill of rights would would have to say and how it would serve as a mechanism to protect human rights and to create a kind of new international landscape based upon the um, the rights of, of human beings rather than based upon the sovereignty and the rights of states. That was one of the things that it was intended to push against was the idea of, of kind of, was the emphasis within the international order on state sovereignty and instead to, to shift that focus to um, thinking about individuals as the kind of locus of, of international law. Um, so after after two years and, and a huge amount of meeting and kind of wordsmithing in this document, what we have in 1948 is the ratification of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I would say that one of the one of the things that's important to understand about this document, and one of the things that generated my initial interest in in writing about it and exploring it, is that um, throughout the negotiations of the First Commission on Human Rights, there there was a contingent of that. Um, that really wanted to have an enforceable document. So, that, so the hope was to create a document that states would sign into with um, with a kind of strong intention of actually uh, of enforcing and, and understanding that document to be a, an international legal document. Um, what ultimately ended up happening was the creation of a declaration instead. Um, and a declaration is something different. The declaration was not in, was understood not to have any particular uh, specific enforcement mechanisms attached to it, but would instead be a declaration. It would be a declaration of a set of commitments and values. And um, so one of my interests in, in that document was the way in which this non-enforceable um, set of rights and principles has 
come to command a particular kind of moral and I would say even legal authority within the world, despite the fact that it's not a document that has any enforcement mechanisms attached to it. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting how you tackle this. And this is where this idea of, of myth, which, of course, in uh, religious studies is kind of a well-worn category. Um, so uh, you, you talk about um, the many ways that myth is understood, uh, but how do you define it and kind of utilize it as an analytical category in your study? So one of the one of the first hurdles, I think, to thinking about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a kind of political myth is obviously the fact that myth has a particular kind of connotation outside of the study of religion that um, many people, myself included, are sort of loath to associate with human rights, right? The notion that, that myths are pretend things or they're, or they're um, maybe even like manipulative or duplicitous kinds of narratives. Um, and so I, um, so it was very important to me to make clear that in thinking about myth, um, uh, within, within religious studies scholarship, that's not what people mean by myth, right? Myth is not something, um, that is not a, is not a term to designate a, a fallacious or a, or a, um, unreal kind of a, of a narrative. And so, um, I, uh, was drawn to the kind of socio-functionalist, um, categorization of myth as, um, as a, as a narrative that serves particular kinds of purposes and exhibits certain kinds of characteristics, but it's, but, um, but the categorization of which is not dependent upon any particular substance. Um, uh, and so I define myth as a, as a narrative that um, wields a tremendous amount of authority and that um, speaks in a way that, that basically presents its claims rather than attempting to argue its claims in any, in any way. And there are many different ways, I think, in which, in which mythopoeic narratives do that. Some of them make reference to, you know, kind of transcendent realm as a way of, of presenting their claims and putting them kind of beyond dispute. Um, obviously, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights doesn't do anything like that. And so part of what I wanted to investigate was the way in which it attempts to make this extremely authoritative assertion about a reality of, about a reality and in doing so, also to create a prescription for how it is that people should behave in light of the reality that it's putting forward, but but the way in which it does that without making any reference to to an institutionalized religion or to a transcendent realm. Yeah, and you can you can feel that throughout the book, uh, this kind of tension between uh, what people might understand as religion versus what they might understand as secular. Um, and in the document itself, it seems like there's there might be some tension here. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how you you parse out the boundaries here or or kind of delineate the boundaries uh, of these various categories and uh, and perhaps where they intersect and overlapped uh, for your subjects? Yes, um, I'm not I, I think that it's this is really a difficult thing to create clear and indisputable boundaries between things like the religious and the secular. Um, and in fact, the entire kind of world of secular studies, I think, is is hinged in large measure upon disputing those clear boundaries and complicating those clear boundaries. So I was what I didn't want to do was to imply that there is some sort of a clear boundary between myth that would happen within a specifically religious context and myth that would happen within a specifically secular context. Um, and I understand that there's a lot of um, a lot of difficulty in terms of how to carve out those those categories in a way that I think would apply in all situations. Um, what what the what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and that and that context allowed me to do was um, not necessarily to have to create universal categories of religion and and, and secularism, but rather um, I was looking at a document that 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 had 
a document that that had part of its authority invested in its claim to be secular. So that so part of the way in which the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is claiming to be able to speak authoritatively for everybody in the entire world was to say that it was operating outside of any particular religious framework and any particular religious commitments and was able to to mediate between or to span all of all possible religious commitments and frameworks. So the, in my mind, the Declaration itself is speaking very forcefully as a secular document and portraying itself as a secular document, and the framers repeatedly portray it in that way. And so to some extent, the way that I attempted to create a boundary between the religious and the secular or, or to figure out what, was, what, what I was talking about when I talked about a secular realm was simply to take the framers of the UDHR at their word, that they were, do, that they were creating a document that in fact was, was disengaged to some extent from any particular religious worldview or orientation and was instead a mediator of all possible religious worldviews. And this is a, this is a definition of, of secularity that has been um, put forward by people like Talal Assad. Now, um, in, in, a, in a chapter you call The Sacred Center of Human Rights, um, you deal with the, the kind of universality of human rights, uh, this, this, this problem that was posed to the, the framers. Um, so how, how did they uh, deal with uh, the idea of human flourishing across cultures? And how do they go about uh, sacralizing, in a way, uh, human dignity? So the argument that I make in the book is that one of the ways in which they attempted to sacralize human dignity was essentially to set it apart as a kind of unquestioned human value that transcends all possible societies and all possible religious traditions. Um, and so um, I, I say in the book at one point, the very, the, the very sacredness of human dignity is to some extent wrapped up with its emptiness as a category. Um, the idea that it can, it can stand as a kind of sacred center of human rights because it is empty enough to be universally resonant um, to, to any, any, any potential person or society around the globe. Um, that's, uh, I think, a, a very particular kind of, of, of a categorization of the sacred that I'm talking about. Um, but again, it seems very much in keeping with um, the, the kind of socio-functionalist approach to categories like the sacred, where um, you're talking about the sacred not as a category that, is, that has any particular substance attached to it, but rather as a category that gets used in different ways across different kinds of communities and religious traditions, um, but, that, but that essentially is a way of setting apart some sort of item of human value or some sort of item of, of, um, of particular worth and worthiness of attention and putting and attempting to put that beyond, beyond the question of the, of the audience, beyond any sort of a dispute within a particular audience. Um, and then you also deal with uh, this um, relationship between uh, the, the kind of sacred and the social is the way you frame the chapter. Um, but the question of the value of individuals versus uh, the community. So how did the uh, UDHR framers um, go about uniting a global community uh, to support individual rights? How, how did they uh, deploy and construct this notion of uh, a human family, if I remember correctly? Yeah, the human family strikes me as a, as a really important mechanism within this document because um, the as I said before, the, the UDHR was intended to be a document that would articulate um, a kind of 
would create an, would present an articulation of human worth that was not dependent upon one's membership within any particular community or within any particular nation. Um, and at the same time would, um, would be able to span lots and lots of different kinds of conceptions of, of human community. Um, and that is an extremely difficult thing to do. The, the way that the human family is articulated within this document, it, it's, it surfaces within the, both the preamble and within, um, within one of the articles of the document is to essentially create a kind of globalized category of, of human community um, and to, to call upon people to imagine themselves in a human community that would be befitting um, a, a world in which all individuals are understood to be sacred. So it's an attempt to, I think, um, balance out the commitment that that all people might have toward particular, toward more localized communities, and then to reorient and reconnect those localized commitments to a kind of global sense of, of community. Um, the question of whether the declaration is successful in doing that, I think, is a completely different question to some extent. And I, and I spend some time in the book questioning, you know, whether or not that's that's something that can be successfully done in the way that the that the commission attempts to do it, because the way the commission attempts to do it is but is to is to um, invoke a notion that is uh, um, sort of intimately familiar potentially to all humans, right? The notion of human family is something that everybody sh that should should in theory be familiar with and that should be capable of resonating with everybody. Whether or not a global community consisting of all humans can also be understood and resonate and can sort of strike us in, in the same effective way as the notion of a human family is a, is a really interesting and live question. It's not something that I attempt to settle in the book, but um, rather what I'm interested in doing in that chapter is to, is to show that the First Commission on Human Rights did not imagine the sacredness of the individual to be something that look, that then individualizes everybody, but rather brings everybody together into a particular kind of community, at least ideally. Yeah. Now, um, in, in the next chapter, you return to um, this uh, kind of challenge that you, you brought up earlier of uh, kind of a non-binding document, uh, it's right as, a, as opposed to a legal document, it's a, just a declaration. Um, the, the challenge of executing these ideals that are being put forth into some sort of political practice. Um, so how, how, uh, how do we go about preserving the human family, ensuring human rights uh, globally in this, in this sense that we, uh, we don't have any uh, legal authority? So, um, and, and I think in this chapter, you, you also focus on this kind of uh, this idea of the rule of law. Uh, which plays an important role in its the document's vision. Uh, how does that play into this kind of uh, challenge? So the argument that I make in this chapter is that while the declaration itself does not is it doesn't is not a document that has any legal mechanisms attached to it, and it doesn't launch any legal mechanisms immediately upon its creation. Um, there is never, it is nevertheless suffused with a kind of legal language. In fact, you see the language of law permeate um, many of the the, de the declaration's articles, and then at the, in the preamble, there's this there's a mention of the the um, of, of access to the rule of law. So the argument that I make is that um, because um, or in the face of of a, of a lack of legal um, legal mechanisms of enforcement, what this document does is to attempt to 
um, sort of link up each individual to an idea of the rule of law. In fact, to, to sort of give each individual um, a kind of legal personality that one has by virtue of being human, and it gives one one should in theory give one access to the legal any sort of legal mechanisms that are already in existence. Um, and so the document, um, so, so the declaration is attempting to kind of open up. The, the rule of law and legal justice and a legal personality to all individuals rather than attempting to create a different type of a legal system. Um, and this allowed me um, to bring in some work, um, some, you know, some very seminal and famous um, uh, theory about the law from, from people like Hannah Arendt, who have talked about the idea of the right to have rights, um, and that as being a, a, um, a kind of principle that's connected in some way to the notion of universal human rights. Now, um, in the conclusion, you you call the the making and unmaking uh, myth. Um, so the the unmaking of this uh, UDHR myth. Um, so help us understand what you mean by this, and then um, tell us about uh, how uncovering the the generative logics of a political myth myth can help us think about its social consequences. Well, one of the things that I'll say is that by the Myths depend to some extent on a kind of effacement of their historical contingency and of their political contingency. And so I was well aware of the fact that one, one of the kind of ironies of, of engaging in a project like this is that in highlighting and, and exploring the political and historical contingencies of the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I was also to some extent sort of compromising um, its status as a document that, that's claiming to be to, to speak um, from a position of of um, from a kind of naturalized position about how the world is, um, and so that and so so that's really what I'm making reference to when I talk about unmaking unmaking the myth. I don't at all mean to imply that I imagine that this book has unmade human rights in any way whatsoever, but rather that it has. Um, my, my attempt has been to to shed, shed some light on the kind of contingencies of the creation of that and, and the sort of intentionality behind the creation of this document, which in which which and part of that intentionality involves. Um, attempting to create a document that, in fact, wouldn't appear to be contingent or um, the product of any particular set of intentions, but would rather simply be a statement of, of reality and a prescription for how people should behave based upon the reality that it's that it's um, describing. Um, so, so there's a little bit of, um, I think, tension and irony um, in, involved in the entire project itself, and that was something that I was attempting to capture in the conclusion. Now. Um, because this book uh, is being awarded from uh, the American Academy of Religion, how, how do you imagine that others that are working in the study of religion might benefit from your work? Uh, why would someone working on Buddhism or Islam or, or, or God knows what, uh, why do you think they, sh they should read your book? One of the reasons... One of the reasons I think that this would be germane to people working in, in, in a lot of different areas in the study of religion is that um, it... I think that it's a book that calls attention to the way in which um, there are religious logics that operate in very complicated ways um, at the at the kind of boundary between different religious traditions, but also between the whatever the religious realm is and, and whatever the secular realm might be understood to be. Um, so, in some sense, I think of this as a as a as one of many many projects um, within the study of religion that are attempting to push 
these categories that we that 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 many many people associate with particular religious traditions to kind of push them beyond the bounds of particular religious traditions and institutions, and instead think of them think of how they might work even within um, contexts that are overtly disavowing any connection to religion. So I think that that is important. I also think that um, there's something important about about appreciating the kind of deep-seated religious and mythopoeic dynamics of a document like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because so many people within the within human rights advocacy communities speak, kind of take the secular the secularity of the declaration at its word and assume that it's not something that has any connection to um, to any kind of religious logics. And I actually think we miss we miss some very important features of the declaration and of the logic of human rights when we don't appreciate. Um, the, the way in which myth is, is operating within this narrative. Well, thanks, Jenna, for one, uh, writing a wonderful book, and congratulations on the award. I hope everybody will uh, pick it up. Thanks very much. It was great to talk. Thank you. Thank you.